Many years ago, I was traveling with a friend of mine through Scotland. We had rented a car and we decided we had a week and a half off from seminary and we were gonna go on a trip and we decided we would hit Great Britain. So we were in uh, Wales and England and Scotland and whilst driving in Scotland, we got a little lost. Now, you're already driving on the incorrect side of the road, in the incorrect side of the car. People have funny accents, and they eat really strange food. Uh, so it had been an interesting trip. We were cold and wet most of the time, because in March, that's what it does in Great Britain. It is rainy and damp. And we were driving along, and we realized we were lost, because um, we decided we, we knew enough to be able to get around England without GPS. We were incor incorrect in that assumption. It was wrong, very wrong. So we uh, were lost on little tiny country roads and we saw a figure up ahead of us in the misty morning on the side of the road and we thought, we're gonna stop and we're gonna ask that guy because we bet that he knows what's around here. And he, sure enough, he's wearing like a, a nice heavy coat and his, his uh, khaki pants were tucked into his gumboots, like he was ready for the day. And we pulled over and we said, excuse us, we are lost. Could you help us find the, the castle that we're looking for? Be, and if any of you are Monty Python fans, you will know which castle we are we're looking for. So we were on the road looking for this castle, lost as could be. And uh, we, we roll down the window, we ask him, and he responds to us, and I think he was speaking English, right? He had a very heavy Scottish brogue, and he would say, and we'd say, uh-huh, uh-huh, and we'd listen again, and we'd say, so we go straight, and then we go to the left, and he, he'd say it again, and by the end of the conversation, we said, thank you so much for your help. We'll see you later, have a great day. We rolled up the window and I looked at Amanda and I said, do you know where we're going? Nope, not a clue. Sometimes when we talk about wisdom, it's a little bit like going to a doctor and you wind up with a prescription and it looks a little bit like this. Right, I know exactly what I need now because it's written down and I've got it, this is it. I have clarity. And the truth is, is that sometimes we think that following Jesus is a very black and white path, that it's very clear, that it's very simple. And today we're going to dig in a little bit about how we can follow a path of righteousness when it may not always seem so simple. Will you pray with me? God on high and God here with us, we once again invite your presence as we open your word, may we learn from you, for we know that you have given this word to teach us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to lead us to you. May we find you here again this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would be so kind, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This is a story that I find fascinating and that so many of us, I think, misunderstand. And I got to tell you what, I tend to side with the laborers in God's vineyard who were there at the beginning of the day and, think who, and who think fairness is important. 
But I'm going to say this, God isn't fair. Grace isn't fair. Mercy isn't fair. What happened to Jesus wasn't fair. But God is just and God is righteous. And maybe we need to reassess when we think about God, what we think about fairness. In verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 1, says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, I love these analogies, what is it like living in the place where God is in charge, where God is the ruler, where things happen according to his plan? The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Now, um, we understand this is a, a man who owns property. And he is hunting for people who can come help him work on his property. He goes to the place where, where laborers, day laborers would gather, and he hires them. I'll pay you a day's wage. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. You want to come? You got a day's wage. He goes three hours later, and he sees people standing in the marketplace again. Verse 4. <clears throat> And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He replies to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, Pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired at the 11th hour, the last minute of the day, came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but they also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? And so, the last will be first, and the first last. I had a church many years ago, and there was a gentleman who would always sit in the back row, and he would sneak out before the end of church. So one day I conspired to get to the back, and I raced back there, and I said, Hey, I've never gotten to meet you. It's so great to meet you. How are you? What's your name? All of the introductions. And I said, you always sit in the back and you leave. He goes, yeah, because the last will be first. <laughs> when we are talking about a day's labor, uh, my parents used to do this to us. We had an acre garden when we lived in Italy. An acre is a pretty big-sized garden. And my parents would force us 
There was no optional labor. They would force us to go and work in the garden. It involved weeding, it involved trimming back the plants, pinching off the heads that needed to be pinched off, making sure that the tomato vines didn't overgrow, putting out new straw on the pathways, all of the things that needed to be done, tying up the poles, you name it. We didn't get paid for it. So here in this uh, <clears throat> parable, I'm a little jealous because they got paid for it, a day's wage. And yet, there's grumbling amongst the workers. Those who agree early, early in the morning to take a day's wage are mad when the people who join late, late in the evening get paid the same thing that they do. God isn't fair when it comes to salvation. If I accept him the minute before I die, or I accept him when I'm 10 years old, I am welcome in the kingdom of God. There is no hesitation on the part of God to welcome people into his kingdom. And it does not mean if I was 10 years old when I accepted God as my own friend, as my own savior, and I said to Jesus, I know what you have done for me and I accept that, it does not make me any better than the one who says on their deathbed, I've waited long enough, Jesus, save me. It's not fair. They get to walk right into heaven, but they didn't have to live a good life. They waited until the last second and they sneak right in. Yes! That's what the kingdom of heaven is about. It's about anyone and everyone being welcomed by Jesus into the courts of his Father. There is no discrimination in the acceptance of Jesus Christ. The easiest way to get out of heaven is to reject Jesus. In fact, it's, it's the only way, isn't it? But God isn't fair. He's not accepting us based on us. I'm going to just say that again. God does not accept us based on us. God accepts us based on Jesus. The way to heaven has been paved by one, and when we follow the one, the way to heaven is broad. God is not fair in salvation, but God is just in salvation. He has done all that was needed to throw open the kingdom of heaven so anyone who wants access can have it. Now, I have a grand, had a grandmother. She passed away this year. She's a pretty phenomenal lady. She was slightly insane. But, no, and I'm not joking when I say it, you never knew which grandma you were going to meet when you went to visit. She uh, had seven children, six of whom lived into adulthood, two of whom died before she did. She had a double, double master's degree, highly intelligent woman, had traveled the world, was absolutely brilliant. And when I went to visit her about a year ago, she grabbed my hand and she said, Jennifer, I just don't know if I'm good enough to make it to heaven. My grandmother had been an Adventist since she was in her 20s. She died at 92. I'm an Adventist today because my grandmother and she said to me, I don't know if I'm good enough to make it. 
When we talk about wisdom, the first piece of wisdom we as Christians must claim is the knowledge of our salvation. And some people in the theological realm will say, well, you can't say that. You can never be sure if you're saved. Bubkiss, I call bubkiss. That's baloney. I know I am saved because of Jesus Christ. The disciple John re reiterates this again and again and again, and I've put some of the quotations up on the screen so you don't have to flip quickly, okay? We're not going to make it too challenging this morning. Uh, John 5, 24, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, as in the present tense containing, has eternal life. Or the following one, he who believes has eternal life. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once God has got you, once you've accepted Jesus Christ, once you believe, you are saved. The emphasis is important. If we look, it has eternal life. You have eternal life, and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I don't know about you, but I would not want to try and grab something from God's hand. And he says that you're the one that's in his hand. Having that assurance is very important. In 1 John, he continues, he says, He who has the Son has life. Right? If I know Jesus, I have something given to me, which is life. And he's not talking about life in the temporal sense. He's talking about life in the eternal sense. He continues in 1 John 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Knowing that we have salvation is essential to following the path of God. Because when you know you are grounded in the knowledge that you are saved, you're no longer wrestling to save yourself. And the energy that you would invest in you can now be invested in other things, far more important things. As I went through some of these verses with my grandmother, we ended on Isaiah 61 and verse 10. It's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to go and look it up sometime today because it speaks to being wrapped in the robe of Jesus' righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 6, when we go through the armor of God, like getting ready for the day, right? Getting dressed appropriately to face the world because the world needs us to be dressed appropriately, right? So he's talking about our spiritual armor. It's not just that we're putting on proper pants and we're putting on blouses and jackets and that sort of thing. It's that we are spiritually ready to encounter the world so that whomever we run into will be able to encounter a piece of God. Whomever we run into will be able to experience compassion. Whomever we run into will meet grace. Whomever we run into will meet wisdom. That when we are connected with God, those things come out in our life. And the first thing that I think we need to make sure that we are very, very sure of is the helmet of salvation. Right? We must know that we are saved. Because from that motive, from that basis, that foundation, will come the ability to carry on the wonderful, joyful message of Jesus. 
But if I am still doubting that I'm saved because I ate a piece of chicken in the second grade, then I'm going to be much more worried about me than I am about anyone else. It is Jesus' robe of righteousness that is wrapped around us, and when God looks at me, he sees that righteousness. It is not a righteousness I can buy. It is not a righteousness I can earn. It is not a righteousness I can steal from anyone else. It is a righteousness given to me only by Jesus Christ. When I was little, uh, it was 1987, so I was little, uh, we lived in Italy, and we went uh, hiking with the Pathfinder Club that was there in the area. Now, we had just recently moved to the country, and I didn't speak any Italian at the time, and we were going for a hike in the forest, which was amazing and beautiful, and everyone was thrilled and happy and lovely. Um, the problem when you're a seven, eight-year-old girl and you haven't done a lot of camping and there are no flush toilets nearby is that it's a little awkward when you have to go to the restroom. So I um, was ushered behind a tree and uh, had a demonstration of how to use the great outdoors. Uh-huh. I had a failure. It was an unsuccessful attempt. So uh, instead of uh, aiming for the ground, I managed to soak my pants. Right? So you pull up pants and you realize, ooh, something is wrong here. And I was eight years old and I was mortified. Right? Here you are, you're eight years old, you're fully potty trained. Um, you're in a different country, you don't speak the language yet, you're around a bunch of kids who are kind of your age and a little bit older, and you've wet your pants. I was absolutely embarrassed. I was hiding behind that tree crying. Right? And one of the older girls realized what it was, what had happened. And she came around behind the tree and she took off a button down like flannel that she was wearing. And she tied it around my waist securely, and we walked together the rest of the day. She took my shame and my embarrassment, and she hid it. And when we are wrapped in Jesus' righteousness, the same thing happens. And I tell you what, that robe of righteousness is cozy. It's comfortable in there. It's already warmed up by the Savior. And it hides everything. Some of us wear Spanx. Yeah? Some of us wear LuLaRoe. We wear all of the big baggy clothes because we want to hide some things. Right? We wear the smile plastered on on Sabbath morning. We wear the, oh, everything is great response when the truth is very, very different. But Jesus knows the truth and he offers us his robe anyway. We have, like the laborers, 
the opportunity to accept the gift even at the end of the day. Now, when I know this, when I am assured that the robe of righteousness covers my shame, when I know that heaven is available and ready for me because of what Jesus has done, suddenly I have the ability to treat others and act towards others in a way that I have not been able to before. Right? Because suddenly the pressure is off of performance and it is instead on relationship. And suddenly it doesn't matter what I've done, how I've failed, how I'm ashamed, or how, what you've done, or how you've failed, or how you're ashamed. Because suddenly we are pursuing the goodness for each other's life. And it matters that good happens to you. Now, when my parents used to spank me, which was not often as a child, um, I went to school once with a belt buckle bruise because um, dad accidentally launched the belt buckle and you could read it, Texas, right there. Uh, so, um, it happens. It was an accident. Anyway, um, when, I don't know where I was going with this. I got distracted by Texas. Like, uh-oh. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a story that came with that. Notes, notes. No, it's not in the notes. You were getting a bonus story, right? But oftentimes we forget that the way we do things is based on what has happened to us already. And when we realize that what has happened to us and for us, the best thing the most profound thing came through Jesus Christ that changes us and the way that we reach others, right? If it hasn't changed you, it's time to reevaluate where you stand in your salvation. It's time to reevaluate if what is motivating you is not that you are saved and you are loved and you are surrendered to God, it's time to reevaluate because other people will start to notice it. Because all of a sudden, it's not about you, it's about them and the goodness that can happen in their lives. I have a sign that stands in my front yard normally. It's a love your neighbor sign. Uh, this is it. This is a challenge. This is a challenge I want to live every day and it's a challenge that I hope that we as Boulder Church and, and beyond as the Adventist Church can live. Love your neighbor who doesn't look like you who doesn't think like you, love like you, speak like you, pray like you, vote like you, love your neighbor. No exceptions. The neighbor next door who always wears a mechanic's uniform and is covered in grease and smells like smoke. Right? That neighbor, that's the one Jesus is calling us to love. The one who sits here on our front porch on Sabbath morning, wearing kitty cat pajamas and reeking. That's our neighbor that Jesus is calling us to love. The woman who's walking down the street wearing a hijab. That's our neighbor Jesus is calling us to love. The neighbor who voted for a different political party than us. 
The neighbor who thinks that it's fine when their dog uses our yard to go to the bathroom. That neighbor is the neighbor Jesus is calling us to love. The neighbor who's in a different kind of relationship than you. The neighbor who has children from four or five different moms or dads. That's the neighbor. The neighbor who drinks coffee. The neighbor who barbecues every Friday night. The neighbor who doesn't go to church. The neighbor who marches in Me Too movement parades. Those are the neighbors Jesus is calling us to love. And it's going to be real awkward. Because all of a sudden, what you believe is going to be questioned by people who don't believe as you do. And that gets real awkward, doesn't it? Really awkward. Because it might challenge my beliefs. Here's the thing. If I have the core of knowledge that God has saved me, that I have the assurance of his love, I have the assurance of his grace, I have the assurance of salvation, there is nothing anyone else can say to me that shakes that foundation. If I know it, I know it. I've got my helmet on, I'm ready to go. This is a dangerous world, I'm ready for that ride. Why? Because I know that I'm saved by Jesus. I didn't do anything to merit it, but he's given that to me. And so that means that no matter if you believe something differently than I do, no matter if you look different than I do, no matter if you vote differently than I do, all of those things, I know that who I am at my core does not change. And I know that who you are at your core, one who is loved by God and pursued by Jesus, does not change. The only thing that will change is the way I begin to treat you. Because in you, I'm looking for Jesus. And I bet you, I'll find him. You know, there's never enough good in the world that we're going to find it all. Never. We're never going to find all of the good. We're never going to be able to do all of the good. But boy, I sure would like to try. I've seen enough of the bad. I've seen enough of the evil. I've seen enough of the pettiness and the backstabbing and the gossiping and the murder and the wars and the horrible diseases. I've seen enough of that. I want to see some more good. And so I'm going to fight for that. And it means that it's going to get really uncomfortable for me at times because I'm going to have to think about things from a perspective other than my own. But it does not mean that I have walked away from the path of righteousness or the path of salvation. It means instead that I'm seeing the good in many, many, many areas, and those are a part of the path of good. Abdu Murray, in his book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World, says this, tolerance only operates among differences, not sameness. No one has to tolerate ideas similar to their own. In fact, to speak of tolerance in such situations is meaningless. Tolerance implies not only differences, but also stress and tension because of those differences. We measure the strength of metals 
by assessing how they tolerate stressors like vibration, heat, and cold. So too, our tolerance levels are measured by the stresses of competing religious claims. We truly tolerate each other when our competing ideas are stressors. Different religious beliefs cause us to put our own beliefs to the test. That's true tolerance, and tolerance can lead to clarity. I had the privilege of attending public school until I went to university. I went to an Adventist university at Pacific Union College, but until then, I went to public school, and I had friends who were every religion. I had Baha'i friends, I had Jewish friends, I had friends who were Buddhist, I had friends who were Hindus, I had some Taoist friends, I had friends from all over the spectrum. And they believed things quite radically differently than I did, and we would talk about them, and we would try and understand each other, and sometimes we would argue about who had the better religion. Um, fried chick is low on the totem pole of good foods that you get to eat in religion. Just saying, and I like fried chick, right? But in those debates, Adventism lost, like radically lost in the food debates. But in knowing these other beliefs, I had the ability to know what mine were. If I never have my beliefs questioned, if I never have them challenged, I may not ever know what they are. And in loving people who are not like me, I'm going to have my beliefs challenged. But if I believe that God made that person, no matter if they believe differently than me, my challenge is to learn to love them in the differences. Can I love them? Because. One of my favorite writers is Anne Lamott. She and I vary politically, but she has some brilliant things to say about God. I've learned a lot from her. And she says this, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. As we're on the path of righteousness, let's be sure that we love all the people God does that we are not creating God in our image, but rather we are being created in the image of God. And that is a God who says, I would do anything necessary to save the world. That is the God I want to pursue. And in pursuing the good in each other, looking, sometimes it takes a magnifying glass, right? A microscope to get in there and say, what is good in this person? Where is it? I'm going to dig in until I find it, right? Sometimes it takes that. But I'm going to pursue the good in you because in pursuing the good, I pursue God. The converse of that statement is also true, that in pursuing God, I pursue good. When I am chasing the one who has done everything to save me, the path of righteousness is broad. There is good to be found everywhere. May we be the ones who say, in the name of Jesus, I am chasing the good. And I will find it because Jesus has already found the good in me. May it be so.